Hey everybody, welcome back to the Doing It Best with the Rest podcast. My guest today is a freaking rock star. She's a licensed OCD anxiety postpartum therapist. She's also the host of the podcast, All the Hard Things. My brain is probably going to forget how to say her last name because she literally just told me like 10 seconds ago, but I'm so excited to welcome Jenna Overbaugh. Studio audience, round of applause. How are you, Jenna? I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me. And you did. You you uh you said it correctly. So good okay. job. Perfect. Perfect. Um, so walk me through how did you get into the world of therapy and studying it and becoming the therapist you are today? Yeah, it all started when I was a little kid, honestly. Like my earliest, earliest memories are of me going to school and having like a stomach ache and, um, you know, being really anxious and really nervous about, oh my gosh, who am I going to sit with? Um, you know, what if I get called on to, to, to answer this question and I don't know it just really, really nervous, just a totally nervous, anxious energy all throughout my life. Um, but even from a very early age, I knew that I didn't like to feel that way. Like I knew that it was somehow easier if I just raised my hand and got it over with. It was easier to just go and sit with the really challenging, really difficult, scary people. Um, and I, I just, that was just how I lived my life. Like I was anxious, but I kept doing the things that made me scared and, you know, it, it was good. And then I, I, in college, um, learned about exposure and response prevention. And I always knew that I wanted to be a therapist. I always knew that I wanted to work with people in some capacity, but I never wanted to be that therapist that at the time the stereotype was like, you sit down and you have tissues and you talk about stuff and you cry and then you walk out and you feel better. Um, I was just, I just wanted to be more of like a coach, honestly. Like I wanted to be more active and like empower people. So I just didn't, I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't think that I had a space to do it. Um, and so I learned about exposure and response prevention um, in my Psych 101 course, which is kind of crazy to think about because we don't really talk about OCD at all, right? And we don't no, talk no. about treatment, right? So I'm always like super grateful that I even got to learn about it so early on. Um, and I always wonder like, what if I didn't go to school that day? Like, what if I didn't go to class that day? Like why, like what I have learned about it. Um, but I was like, that's it. Like I have to, I, I just like, I wanted to learn everything that I could about exposure and response prevention. I wanted to learn everything that I could about OCD and anxiety. And, you know, before we get too far into it, exposure and response prevention or ERP, it's exactly what I had been doing that this whole time, right? It's it's exposing yourself and putting yourself in anxiety provoking situations um, with the intention of doing it courageously, you know, in an effort to eventually no longer be as fearful of it, right? And like doing the things because they're scary. Um, and it's a, an evidence-based treatment for OCD and anxiety. It's actually what we should be doing for OCD and anxiety. And so I just love that. Um, I got really, really into it. And uh, every internship, every research paper from then on, it was about OCD and anxiety and about exposure and response prevention, trauma. Um, and I tried to focus in on it as much as I could, went to grad school. Um, I worked at Johns Hopkins Hospital with kids and adolescents who have OCD and anxiety for two years. I worked at a residential OCD and anxiety recovery center for several years, working with some of the, you know, most debilitating, most complex cases of OCD and anxiety in the world. And then, you know, eventually made my way into 
the social media world with COVID and everything. Um, and yeah, it's been a really great experience. I love this treatment. I love the community. Um, OCD and anxiety are just one of those things like they can be so debilitating for people. Um, and it, there's, but it's so treatable. It's so treatable. Um, and unfortunately people suffer with OCD and with anxiety for a very long time, not knowing yeah. that they can be better or feel better or do anything about it. And so, you know, I, I look to social media and podcasts and all that stuff as a way to educate people, like what it is that you're struggling with. It can be so debilitating, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I feel really strongly about that. Yeah, some people are scared to come forward with admitting that they either have OCD or they have anxiety. And some people are just like, oh, it's just, it's whatever. You're just overthinking and you're fine. You're just a normal human. But in reality, you have, you have it. And that's okay to admit. I mean, I tell people it's fine. It is, it's okay. Like there's help to help you with that, you know? Yeah. So, and, and and so much of mental health exists on a spectrum, like yeah. even, even psychotic symptoms exist on a spectrum, right? Like we've all had that experience where we feel like our phone is vibrating in our pocket, but it's not actually in our pocket. Oh my God. I literally have that all the time. <laughs> all the time, right? Like, yes, like everything exists on a spectrum. Like just because you have that sensation or have had that experience, it doesn't mean that you're psychotic just because you have anxiety or because you overthink. It doesn't mean that you have OCD or anxiety. We all experience these things to some degree, but when it becomes disruptive and it becomes so distressing and it becomes impairing in their everyday life, like it inhibits them from being able to focus at school or inhibits them from being able to live the life that they want. And, and more importantly, like when they feel like anxiety is running the ship and like calling the shots versus you calling the shots and just kind of like this, you know, anxiety is like this thing that you kind of carry around, like it can, it can get so bad. And, and so, yeah, there's definitely a difference between like the everyday kind of overthinkers um, and the like, oh yeah, I have those thoughts every once in a while versus like, no, this is completely debilitating and <laughs> like, I can't live my life like that anymore. No, literally. And no, uh, and so you're talking about um ERP exposure and response prevention. Do you have to like do that with the therapist or do you, can you do that on your own or like how does that work? So, exposure and response prevention when you when you think about it as it is an evidence-based treatment for OCD and anxiety. Yes, ideally we would like to have people work with a therapist because it can be super nuanced, right? And you know, there's a lot of different considerations. You need to make sure you should be making sure that these exposures, for instance, are challenging, but manageable. So if somebody is afraid of heights, I'm not going to have them just, oh yeah, go do an exposure where you jump up, you know, you go bungee jumping, right? Like that's not going to be helpful. Um, it's, so that's definitely not what it's about. It would be more so about like, okay, like, can we, you know, go, can we go to the top floor of your work building that you've been needing to go to for however long that you've been avoiding because you don't like heights, right? Um, so it is super nuancy in that way. Like we want to make sure that people aren't doing harm to themselves by like doing the worst case scenario exposure possible and just making their symptoms worse, which can definitely happen. But I also feel really strongly about a couple of things, including that not everybody has access to a therapist, right? Like we think about, you know, just the cost of it, the accessibility of it, um, you know, like logistically, I think of so many moms, like I think of so many moms who like they have to work, they have childcare. Like, you know, I remember when I had my son five years ago, I really needed therapy, but I was like, if I had time for a therapy session, I would shower. Like, yeah. 
I just didn't have the, like, of course I, I made the time for it eventually yeah. because it, I needed to, but you know, there's so many like practical reasons why people aren't able to access a therapist, whether that's cost, whether that's like not able to have an expert in your area. There are so many ridiculous laws too. Like even, even though we can do therapy virtually nowadays, there's still so many restrictions. Like I, as a licensed professional counselor, we're only able to see people where we are licensed. So I'm not able to see just anybody in the world. I'm not able to see anybody from California. Like I'm only able to see people in the States where I'm licensed. And so, you know, it's very restrictive in a lot of ways. And yeah, there's, I mean, think about other countries, right? Like in the United States, we are a little bit more open to mental health, but in other countries, right? Like you don't just have an ERP specialist, like uh, available to you at the drop of a dime. So I'm of the opinion that as long as you're like, you know, obtaining legitimate, you know, information, like hopefully from a licensed professional counselor, which I hope to provide, like it's better than nothing. Exactly. Exactly. It's better than nothing. And, you know, like, I think the worst thing is to continue letting OCD and anxiety win. (laughs) So um, as long as you're not, you know, doing any harm and as long as you are knowledgeable, like as a consumer, that that's not therapy, right. And that it is like the, that the content that we provide, it is just intended to be general and that everyone of course is different. We would love for you to be able to work with a therapist, but we know also that that's not possible for people. Yeah. And I was going to say, piggybacking off of the, I know it was just an example, but with the whole height situation and anxiety and stuff like that, it's like when we come down to the, oh my God, okay, I can do it. But once we get to the part of doing it, we freeze and we don't do it because I have, so I went bungee jumping with the, not bungee jumping, ziplining with a friend. And so I remember I was so hyped. Oh my God, it's going to be so much fun. Then once I got to that platform of ziplining, my brain was like, uh-uh. Hello, where are we? Um, so I stand I stood there for a good 20 minutes. I'm like, you know what? I'm turning back around, turning back around. And but then I told myself, you know what, Bo, you've been through so much more than this. Like this harness will hold you, but you've battled yeah. so much more than just a simple zip line that you're about to go what five feet, six feet across. So it's crazy how our brains are big. It's the biggest weapon. My one of the biggest weapons, in my opinion, your brain, your mind can tell you so many things. And, you know, like I think I think as people who have OCD and anxiety, we can really rag on our own selves. Like we can really rag on our brains like, oh, my gosh, like I want to go ziplining. Why is my body making me do that? Why is my brain making me do that? And honestly, like everything that we do is out of survival, like literally everything that we do is out of survival. It's just sometimes, you know, we haven't caught up with evolution yet, or like rather evolution hasn't caught up with us yet. And like our modernized world, right? Like our brains aren't able to make sense of that we live in a modern society where we can go ziplining for fun. Our brains are like, you are literally jumping off of this high building for no reason. Like there's no reason why that should make sense to our brains, right? Like from a survival sense, like, of course it makes sense that our brains would pause and make us do that. And we have to recognize too, that we are elevated creatures with goals and commitment and our only, you know, goal as human beings aren't it's it can't just be to survive right like our brain's goal is to survive but our higher selves right like we have goals and we want to go ziplining because that sounds so freaking cool and so much fun and yeah so we are at odds with that 
part of our brain that just wants to survive, but we also have a prefrontal cortex, you know, a very elevated, like eloquent um, part of our brain that, you know, we have fun. We want to go ziplining for fun. And sometimes our, our like more mammalian brain, like our, our basic functioning kind of brain that just wants us to survive. They're at odds with each other. Yeah. But it also keeps us from like running into traffic, you know? It's true, so true. <laughs> um, Is it true though, that they say like, as people get like in their seventies, eighties, their frontal lobe shrinks or what is it? Um, so uh, I mean, I'm not as much of an expert about that, but yeah, I mean, when we, that's why, like, for instance, um, you're not able to like vote until you're 18. You're not able to like rent a car until you're 21. You're not able to drive until you're 16 in a lot of places because research shows that, you know, that frontal lobe is not as developed. Right. Um, and so that's why like my five-year-old who's five, like he often is a little bit of a daredevil like he just will run around the house without like any like with his like slippery socks on and he falls all the time and he busts out his tooth he chipped it to a front tooth the other day um he's just a little daredevil we don't yeah. think about things right like we don't like because that free that prefrontal cortex in your brain isn't fully developed until you're like 16 18 20 21 25 um and yeah, it would make sense that as we age, right, that that all parts of our brain slowly start to deteriorate, including um, definitely that front part. And that's why things like memory can start to become difficult whenever we're older. Emotion regulation can be a little bit difficult as we become older, too. Um, yeah, so that definitely does happen. Yeah, interesting. I was, I was like, let me let me find out real quick. Oh, but um, so... I think the million dollar question people want to know, like, how do you know if a person is OCD? Because I know sometimes this might be very insensitive of me and I, and I apologize, but um, I'll have, I'll joke with myself. I'm OCD about, oh my God, I'll write something down in my handwriting. I don't like it. So I'll erase it and then redo it and erase it again if I don't like it. Or if I see something on the shelf that's not sitting right for me, I'll fix it again. Like, how do you know if a person does have that? So, and I think that's such a great, it's such a great question. And it's something so great to talk about. Um, And like I said earlier, right, we all have some, we all have these little things that we do, right? We all have these little things that we can do. And I'm sure that's super relatable with the examples that you gave. OCD is a two-part problem. So we have obsessions and then we have compulsions. So obsessions are intrusive thoughts, ideas, images, impulses, or feelings. A lot of times they come in the form of like a what if or like an image or just a feeling, but um, it can be kind of any of these like intrusive, just like I call them almost like spam, like they're very unwelcome and they come in, you didn't really ask for them, but they just kind of pop up. And research shows that everyone in the world has these intrusive thoughts of all kinds, right? We've done research that shows that no matter where you're at in the world, you have these intrusive thoughts like, oh, I don't like my, that that looks bad, right? I don't, I don't want my writing to look like that or up, oh, that didn't feel right. Um, or it can be, you know, harm intrusive thoughts, right? Like harm intrusive thoughts, like a lot of times people, I mean, we can all kind of relate to that example of like, we have road rage, right? And we just want to like slam our car into the back of their car or, you know, our husband is snoring in the middle of the night and we're really tired. So we just want to like slap them with a pillow, right? Kind of these harm intrusive thoughts. We all have these thoughts and uh, 
they actually gave people, they did an experiment where they gave two groups of people, one people who, one group of people who have OCD, another group of people who don't have OCD. And they gave them this experiment, like go out into the world and just live your life and write down all of the scary, like weird thoughts that you have on a day-to-day basis. They do that. They go out into the world. They do their thing. They write down all their scary, like weird thoughts that they have. They come back and a third person could not reliably discern what group that list came from. And so it just goes to show that like, we all have those thoughts, right? Like we all have those thoughts. Like it's not necessarily the thoughts that are the problem. It's also the compulsions, right? So we all have these little like quirky things that we do, (laughs) right? Like, you know, we might do something a couple of times. We might check something. We might like be a little bit perfectionistic here and there, but those compulsions are really like those anxiety reducing things that people do either behaviorally or in their head to make themselves feel better about one of those obsessions. Um, But where it becomes problematic, again, like we all have obsessions to some degree. We all have compulsions to some degree, But where it becomes problematic is the D part, the disorder part. And so when we're looking at as far as like diagnostic criteria, where something deviates from just like the normal and what we would see like in the average population, we see a lot of distress, we see impairment and the general rule, like this is in the diagnostic and statistical manual, um, is that these things take up an hour plus a day. I don't die on that hill. Like, I don't even really need to ask somebody like, how much time do you spend on this every single day? Like I can kind of get the feel for how distressing their difficulties are without having them to quantify it. But just to give you guys all an example, right? Like that's, that's kind of what we're looking at. Like if these things are taking up an hour plus a day, it's probably something where you might want to just think about it a little bit more. Um, but mostly we look for distress and impairment. So distress is to what degree does you do, does you having to go back and like change your handwriting and do all these other things? To what degree does that distress you? If that's just Level something 100. that you, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. So if you, I mean, if you feel like that's something that like, oh man, I don't want to keep doing that, but you feel like you have to, otherwise something bad is going to happen or otherwise you won't be able to tolerate it. Oh man, I just feel like I have to. I just feel like if it's a preference, that's fine. That's not OCD. But if it's a need, like I need to, I need to, otherwise X, Y, Z, that's also potentially distress, right? So that might be something that we talk about as far as diagnosis, but also impairment, right? So I'm, I've worked with people who like their lives are literally impaired because of their OCD. Like they are unable to go to work on time. They are unable to engage in the things that they like to do. They are unable to turn in assignments on time. They are unable to maybe feed themselves or go shower or go to the bathroom. Like it can get really debilitating sometimes. Um, But the way that I see it, right, like if these things are causing you to stress and if they're causing you to not be able to live the life that you want, then I would totally seek uh, like additional kind of help or consultation about it because like I said, it's super treatable and it doesn't have to be that way forever. Wow. That totally just, my mind is like blown. I just, so I'm surprised, I'm I'm not surprised, but like the things I learn every day, especially about people and how you're saying that they the OCD affects your lives or the anxiety affects your lives especially for me I'll be open and transparent with you anxiety is one of the factors I have on on a day-to-day basis like I did I was with 
that way. I was using BetterHelp, and I took, I guess it was like a quiz or whatever that my therapist gave me, and then I got diagnosed, or not diagnosed, I can't say that word, but it gave me moderate to severe. So I'm just like, oh gosh. So, well, and we just, that's the thing, like, that's kind of, I think we, we don't talk about this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like we talk about like the pleasantries of life and we talk about the highlights and we don't go around. I, I mean, we might joke about it. We might like give the ba- very superficial details, but we don't just go around talking about how anxious we are and how distressing yeah. it can be and how much it impairs our life. And so we feel like, Oh no, it couldn't possibly be that bad. Uh-huh. Oh my gosh. It's moderate to severe. Are you kidding me? Like, no, like it, it, and especially when you've been that way for so long and it's just kind of like your status quo, like you don't realize that life is not actually supposed to be that way. Yeah. Like if, if fear and anxiety are guiding the majority of your decisions, like that's not normal. Like that, yeah. that's not normal and it's not helpful. It's not yeah. helpful. Yeah, no, definitely. And I guess this pivots me to my next question that I have for you. So I know a lot of us are guilty of Googling questions. So of like, am I being a good girlfriend, boyfriend? If I do X, Y, Z, am I having symptoms or whatever? I go to the doctor. Yeah. Um, what do you think, what are ways that people can prevent of doing that? Cause not, like I said, a lot of us are guilty and it's okay to admit that. Yeah, for sure. So I think we, we live in a world now where we have so much information at our fingertips, right? And there was actually a really funny comic about how like OCD was not a thing like so many years ago. I'm sure it was in some ways, but like hundreds of years ago, it wasn't a thing because we didn't have that information at our fingertips, right? Like we weren't able to just like jump on our phones and have like all the information ever available to us so quickly. Um, And yeah, I mean, sometimes some good things happen, right? Like you Google something and you realize that you have OCD and you're like, holy cow, I would have never realized that had I not entered that into Google. Like, thank you, Google. But other times we're Googling unanswerable questions. Like, am I being a good girlfriend? Like, what does that even mean? Right? Like, what does that even mean to be a good girlfriend? And I know, I know because I've been there. Like I, I, I talk mostly as a professional, but I also have lived experience with OCD. I really struggled with postpartum OCD after I had my son back in 2018. Um, I struggled with harm intrusive thoughts. I struggled with sexual intrusive thoughts. I struggled with just doubt in every form that you could ever possibly imagine. Right. And like, I would Google relentlessly. I Googled relentlessly. Like, I I had a lot of difficulties specifically about like, I wanted to just be 100% sure that my son was not going to die before me. I wanted to know with 100% certainty, which is what OCD is all about, right? It's about the intolerance of uncertainty. I wanted to be 100% sure that my son was never going to die before me. And I would Google like statistics. I would Google like stuff about safety, about schools and stuff about safety, about the city that we live in. And um, despite not having any evidence or like any legitimate fear for that, you know, like reason to fear that stuff. Like I just yeah. wanted to know with 100% certainty that somehow I would not have to deal with that. Like the emotional pain of having to like see my son die before me. And then I, I, I realized one day I was like, wow, there's literally nothing that I can do. There's no Google article. There's nothing that I can do to be 100% sure of that. Like there's no Google article out there that will tell me there's no doctor out there that will tell me there's no place that we can move that is safe enough. Like I literally like there's nothing that I can do. There's no way that I can win here. 
Yeah. And as, as awful as that sucks, right? Like to like have to mourn and accept the fact that like, yeah, like the, the answer and the clarity that I want, like it doesn't exist on Google and it doesn't exist at all. Right. Like what we do by going on Google, right? Like we, we think that that's going to be helpful, right? We have a lot of anxiety. We feel like we can't tolerate the uncertainty, and so we think that if we just type this into Google, we'll know. Like if I just type this into Google, then I'll know. And a couple of things can happen when you do that, right? Like when you go onto Google or you call a doctor or whatever, you can get the information that you want, right? Like you could get the information that you want. And then you have that like temporary relief where you feel like, okay, everything is better. And okay, I know now that I am being a good girlfriend. But when you have OCD and anxiety, it's a lot of what ifs, right? right? And so you just, you you might have read that article that confirms, quote unquote, that you are a good girlfriend. But what if they weren't together as long as you and your partner have been together, right? Like right. What, if, what if that article applies to everybody else but me, right? And so you just are, you get yourself back into the beginning again because yeah. you just have all these what ifs. Yeah, and it's just like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> And and same, like if you were to go to a doctor, right? Or like look up a medical diagnosis or like, you know, weird physical, weird pain in my chest. Google, what does that mean? You know, you read it and you're like, okay, like, okay, I have the reassurance that I'm not dying. But what if I am actually dying and Google like wasn't thorough enough, right? And and it's like you, we can't live and be prisoner to these what ifs, right? Like, and the answer isn't going to be in another Google search. The answer isn't going to be in another doctor call. The answer has to be that we learn to tolerate uncertainty because it's just a simple fact of life. Like as much as that sucks, right? Like I have to learn to accept the fact that my son might die before me. And it doesn't mean that I have to like it. It doesn't mean that I have to prefer it. It doesn't mean that I can't work to, you know, make informed decisions to hopefully, you know, allow him to not die before me, but I could do all of those things and I could still have that happen. You could look up all the articles and still have a heart attack and die. Like, and, and it, like the anxiety, I think in a way it helps to like momentarily protect us to make us feel like we have control, but we actually don't have control at all. Yeah. It's, it's such a, almost like a facing a reality kind of thing, I guess to say. Yeah. It's, I mean, anxiety and OCD, they, set us up to want a fantasy, right? Like they set us up to want a fantasy where we are, where we know 100% that we are a good girlfriend, where we know 100% that our bodies are fine and that we will never die. It's like those, like, I don't get to have that certainty. You don't get to have that certainty. The person walking their dog outside right now that I'm watching doesn't get to have that. Like none of us get to have that certainty. That's like the, like the crazy, complicated, sucky, but beautiful thing about having a life Right. Especially one where we're not just like bubble wrapped in a corner of our home, completely isolated of. Right. Like, yeah, it's kind of the 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 price we pay for living a decent life. Like, yeah, we're going to have to tolerate some of that uncertainty. And again, like the answer is not in a Google a Google <laughs> search. It, it, it may be temporarily is going to make you feel better, but. Whew, you can find a lot of nasty stuff on Google too. Yeah, <laughs> it's just makes that, everything worse. Yeah, it's a band-aid to keep it to keep it safe for the meantime but i just want to say though um you opening up about your postpartum and stuff like that a lot i know a lot of my mommy listeners will definitely 
appreciate that and relate to that a lot because especially I have, I have my sister and I know she went through a lot of postpartum that listens to the show right now. So if you're listening, I love you. Hi. Um, Hi. <laughs> so I, I that definitely touched. I almost started crying for a minute we were sharing because I'm like, obviously I'm not a parent, so I can't relate. But at the same time, like it's being open and honest like that. I generally appreciate that a lot. And thank you for sharing. Yeah. And, and especially for mom. I mean, we don't talk about this stuff nearly enough. Like I think everyone, it sounds so cliche, but like, we're all struggling with something. We're all struggling with something. Um, and I don't trust any of statistics online about like, Oh, 2% of new moms struggle with postpartum OCD. Like, no, it's way more than that. It's way more than that. We just don't talk about mental health. We don't talk about mental health. We don't talk about OCD. We don't talk about anxiety. We don't talk about the bad stuff. And so it's a self-perpetuating thing, right? Like, I know whenever I've been super open and honest about my stuff, even just like in my friend group, it's like suddenly everyone else comes out of the woodworks and they're like, oh my gosh, me too. Like I thought I was the only one. And it's like, no, none of us are the only one. It's just that no one freaking talks about it. And so we have to talk about it. Yeah. Some people, if you, if you're that first one to come forward and talk about it, they'll start trickling in and be like, okay, I have that too. Can I say this, this and this? Like, okay, like we're relatable, you know? Yeah. So it's it's definitely like yeah, it's it's crazy how this this world is just works every day. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> um but so my next question that I have for you. So in one of your videos, you talk about mental compulsions are oh I can't talk today, <laughs> are habitual and not automatic. Can you break that down for me a little bit more? Because <laughs> I know there's also physical and avoidance compulsions as well. Yeah, so um when we think about compulsions, again, like those are the things that we do in an effort to reduce the anxiety that we feel from these obsessions, right? So, um, you know, the one that's going to come to mind for a lot of people will be like the hand washing because you're fearful of germs or like the perfecting of things because, you know, you don't like a way that, the way that a certain thing looks. And those presentations can certainly happen, but it's just like a drop in the bucket of all the other things um, and ways that OCD and anxiety can manifest. Um And so compulsions, these things that we do to try to feel better, call them safety behaviors, rituals, whatever, um, anxiety reducing behaviors, all the same thing. Um, They work for a very temporary amount of time, but they just kind of by doing it, the reason why they're not helpful is because it gives the initial obsession credibility. So every time, you know, if, if someone's feeling doubtful about whether or not they're a good partner, you know, whether they're a good enough girlfriend, they go on to Google as the obsession or as the compulsion, they feel a little bit of that temporary relief, but they've also just given all the credibility in the world to that initial fear that they're not a good girlfriend, right? Because your brain is kind of like, well, ha like that must've warranted some type of response. Like that must've been an important thought because you acted on it. So let's really be on the lookout for that in the future. And so now, because you're going to have that thought again, because you're going to be with your boyfriend or you're going to be with your partner, you're going to have that doubt again. You now, because you just went and Googled, right? And you've just given that obsession credibility, you now have that memory. And so now anytime that you have that trigger, you're going to want to go right to Google. And that's how these compulsions happen. Again, they're bad because they make the OCD and anxiety cycle worse. They reinforce the initial fear. So there are lots of different kinds of compulsions that somebody could do. Like you mentioned the physical ones, again, like going on to Google, asking for reassurance, um, avoidance, just like straight up avoiding the scary things that you would rather be doing, but you avoid it because you're afraid. Uh, but there are all, also these like non-observable or mental compulsions. Um, so non-observable 
would just be, you know, usually these things are happening in our heads. So a lot of times uh, we will engage in uh, mental compulsions or non-observable compulsions like rumination. So rumination is um, kind of like any time that we try to figure something out, right? Like, well, I'm I, I'm not going to Google whether or not I'm a good partner. I'm just going to try to think about it. I'm just going to try to think about it and remember all the good ways that I am a great partner and try to remind myself that, you know, my boyfriend loves me and he seems to think that I'm a good partner. And, you know, you know, you just like recall, right? Like you're just trying to figure it out in your head. Um, kind of like worrying, um, like worrying, but it goes like nowhere. Um, other mental compulsions could be like self-assurance. Oh, fine. It's fine. That's just anxiety. You're not having a heart attack. You're, you're, you're just having, uh, you know, you're, it's just anxiety. You're not having a heart attack. It's fine. Yeah. Um, other ones could be mental review. So a lot of times I work with people who like worry that they did something awful while they were drinking or worry that they offended someone in conversation. So they will like effortfully go back in their memory to try to remember like, what did I say? How did I say? Where? How did I come off? Could I have offended this person? And they try to figure it out. They try to get that certainty. Um, and so those can be really difficult where people get mistaken is that they feel like, oh my gosh, I can't stop. I can't stop worrying. I can't stop reviewing. I can't stop ruminating. And it's like, we need to acknowledge the very subtle, but very meaningful difference between a thought and thinking. A thought is something that happens to us, right? We don't necessarily choose our thoughts. Thoughts can pop into our head, right? We don't, we don't control our thoughts anymore that we control our dreams, right? Like we don't, yeah. we don't choose our dreams. Our dreams find us. Our dreams choose us. Now, what we do with that thought is completely up to us, right? Like if we have that thought, like, ooh, your leg is a little tingly right now. What does that mean? That's the obsession. That's the the thought, right? You yeah. can't help that. That popped up. And I always tell people, you can't help the thoughts that pop up, but you are in control of the thoughts that you conjure up. So all of the conjuring up of thoughts that you do about what that tingling in your leg could mean. And, huh, I haven't felt that before. Have I ever felt anything like that before? What else could that mean in my body? Do I feel weird anywhere else in my body? That's all you conjuring up thoughts. And so... Another analogy that I use with people, this is not original. I don't know where it came from, but that we can't help if a bird lands on our head, but we can prevent it from laying a nest, right? So yeah, I can't help right now. (laughs) Yeah, like I can't I can't help a bird from landing on my head, but I am in control of whether or not I make a home for it, you know? So, you know, it's it's the very subtle difference between a thought that pops up, which we cannot help. We cannot help the thoughts that pop up, but we are 100% in control of what we do about it. And a lot of times, especially with OCD and anxiety, we feel the need to pursue that thought. We feel the need to take responsibility for that thought. We feel the need to try to figure out that thought and to get certainty about that thought. It might feel irresponsible to say not Google what's wrong with my leg and what that could mean. It might feel irresponsible to not look up statistics about whether my five-year-old could die before me. But if this is the stuff that's really distressing you and impairing your life and getting in the way, you have to take those chances and you have to make those decisions to resist the compulsions because to continue to do the compulsions, like I said, it just gives that initial fear credibility and then we lose and OCD gets way stronger. Yeah. I, d- I- I'm putting those quotes on a shirt right now. No, I'm kidding. This is so good. Uh, <laughs> so this good. Is so good. 
So good. And I think too, like so many of us can resonate with the concept of worrying, right? Like, oh, I yeah. just can't stop worrying. I worry all the time. It's like, I think sometimes we justify our worry and our rumination as problem solving. Like we think that we're problem solving. Like I just have to, I just, if I just think enough about how good of a a partner I am, then I'll be fine. Like, it's like, no, no, that's not problem solving. Like we don't, we don't actually solve problems in our heads, right. By just continuing to think about the problem. Problem solving is about the solution. Worrying is about the problem. And so at some point, you know, just really like asking yourself, am I problem solving right now? Or am I just ruminating and continuing to cycle through the same exact stuff and like not actually make meaningful action problem solving requires action, right? Like you kind of make a pros and cons, you write down all the list of alternative strategies that you could do, and then you pick one and then you you do it, right? Like you pick one, you go out of your way and you are like forward thinking about it. It requires action. Yeah, Whereas definitely. worrying is just, it's in your head. Yeah, for sure. Um, no, but Jenna, and by the way, y'all, I, if I sound so nasally, I'm getting over a cold during this podcast. So just FYI, but Jenna, this has been so much fun and so informative. I can't thank you enough. But um, but before I let you go, plug your socials where everyone can find you. And if you have like any workshops coming up, stuff like that. Yeah. So if anything that I'm saying resonates with you, you would love, love, love my Instagram. I live mostly over on Instagram at uh, jenna.overball. I'm also playing around on TikTok. So feel free to find me there too. Um, and mostly you can find me too on my website. It's at jennaoverbaughlpc.com. Um, I actually have two workshops. They are available for purchase. They're kind of replays um, of old ones, but I've been told they're super, super helpful. Um, one's an hour long about OCD and anxiety. One is two hours long about ERP, which is the treatment. Um, really helpful. I've gotten great testimonials about it. So that's available on my website. But if you have any questions, you can reach out to me on my social media. Um, and I also, like you mentioned, I have a podcast um, where I go super in depth about all of these concepts, really, really lay into it heavy. So uh, that's called All the Hard Things. Um, and you can find that wherever you listen to your podcast. Perfect. I might have to look into your workshops in the future. <laughs> They're so good. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, but all right, my loves, thank you all so much for tuning into this week's episode of Doing It Best for Us podcast. I love you all so, 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 so much. God, this outro is terrible. I'll catch you all next week. <laughs>